0: Welcome to season one, episode five, where I am joined by Dr. Alexandra Musatooks, who is a fellow assistant professor here at Indiana University, Bloomington. Uh, We are in different departments, but we do share a lot of interests. It was a pleasure to get to chat with her on this episode. Dr. Musatooks studies the role of the cerebellum in things like psychosis in particular, And what I found really interesting is that she is clinically trained. So she does hold a licensure in both the states of Tennessee and Indiana. And she has goals of starting up a clinic here for early intervention related to psychosis in undergraduate population. I should say maybe just a greater college population. So she's got some big goals. It was great hearing from her. She's been out of her PhD now for about three years and has explored a variety of different placements within academia, ranging from a clinical internship to a postdoc to more of a clinical teaching professorship in a medical school. And now she's back here with me in the College of Arts and Sciences, where she holds a tenure track position where her primarily, well, what she primarily does, I should say these days, is research. So she's gone through and experienced a lot of things and has some insight for people who might be similar to her looking to kind of branch out or explore different realms of academia. I hope you enjoy. Well, we'll do a little welcome for all the listeners and I will let Alex introduce herself cause she's gonna be better at it than I am. So <laughs> take it away.
1: Perfect. Um, yeah, so I'm Alex or Alexandra Musa Tooks. I am currently at IU Bloomington. Um, And I'm primarily in the clinical area of the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences. And I'm an assistant professor. That's my title.
0: (laughs) This is a fun one because usually I talk to people over Zoom, but now Alex and I are just kind of awkwardly sitting next to each other in the room. Yes. (laughs) But it's great because it's uh, a day where no one else is here, so Mm -hmm. we're just hanging out. But, okay, so we were talking before we started. You did your PhD at IU, and sure now is. you're back. So maybe tell us a little bit more about what your PhD was in. Give us some context. Yeah. And then we can go from there.
1: For sure. So um, IU does this really cool thing in PBS where you can do a dual PhD and so for undergrad, my major was neuroscience.
0: Oh, I didn't know you were here for undergrad as well. So I was a fan of for undergrad. Okay, that makes sense. Okay.
1: But when I applied to grad school, I wanted a PhD in psychology, but I really did not want to lose my like basic wet lab okay. stuff. Um, and so it was really important to me to be able to study at least some neuroscience. And then in looking at lots of programs, I was like, oh man, I could do a dual PhD in like to me neuroscience and psychology are inseparable they go hand in hand and so it made a lot of sense yeah. and that was just really attractive about the program so that's how i ended up here um and then when i interviewed i met with bill hetrick who was my phd advisor and it was just like a really lovely conversation um as you can probably imagine <laughs> sure
0: you know, you know. good guy
1: good he's a guy. he's a good guy and he's just very curious he has lots of ideas he is really great at entertaining any and all ideas
0: yeah
1: um and i remember in our interview we basically developed what ended up being my dissertation project what? in <laughs> our in our interview <laughs> because we were both really excited at the time. And Bill doesn't do a lot of like wet lab work or animal research, but he's collaborated with animal researchers. But at the time we were both really interested in, he had heard about these maternal separation animal models. Um, And I was really intrigued by those at the time, given some of my undergraduate research background. And we just really got to talking about that and eye blend conditioning. Um, which he does a lot of in the lab and yeah, just like spiraled into this huge
0: project. That
1: we That's were hysterical.
0: Yeah. I love that. When has that ever happened before in anyone's life? <laughs> uh, very rarely, I would think. <laughs> I remember interviewing for my PhD and being like, so I like language and I want to learn how to do MRI scanning. And yes. my advisor was like, okay,
1: we got you. That was
0: it. <laughs> That was like about the extent of it.
1: That's how most of my interviews go with mm-hmm. uh, potential trainees, but yeah, it was it just like it flowed really naturally, and I was okay. like, I want to work with this dude. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I think I also got I reached out to some programs and got a lot of feedback of like, if you're coming into our clinical psych PhD, like you can't do animal work, or like oh you interesting, you can't take the neuroscience classes or have mm-hmm. a neuroscience mentor. And yeah, I just remember being really put off by that. Like these are inseparable. Like, why yeah. are you barring me from
0: that's super crazy. So yeah. during your PhD, so you did psych and neuro. Yes. Then you obviously had to do clinical training. Yeah. Throughout that. So how did how did that fit? Yeah.
1: It actually fit pretty well. Okay. Um, I love clinical work. Yeah. I didn't know whether I would or not going in. It's really hard. Um to get clinical training prior to being in like a graduate program. Yeah, sure. Um, so a lot of students come in not really knowing for sure what that will be like. Yeah. Um, But a lot of our kind of internal and external practica are day long and kind okay. of contained. So we have a bunch in Indianapolis. So I would go to Indianapolis for the day hmm. and that would kind of be my clinic day. And then okay. I would come back. Which the physical separation makes it really nice because you can kind of turn off a little bit more.
0: Um, yeah, pop on a nice audiobook on your way home. Like, it's going to clear the brain.
1: That is 100% what I do. I got through a lot of yeah. audiobooks. I
0: love audiobooks,
1: which is great. Um, yeah. And yeah, it felt contained enough that I was able to kind of manage. Um, at the time for my PhD, I was doing. Animal research um and some imaging work, but okay. that a lot of the imaging data was part of Bill's ro one Right. So that was already being collected and I didn't have to manage like research participants. And some people might disagree with this, but I feel like with animal work, it can be a little more structured and contained. Like I, you know, schedule out my timeline, right. the rodents are there when I need them.
0: They don't go to work.
1: They don't, they don't go to school. They're always at work.
0: They're always <laughs> at work. That's right. Yes.
1: <laughs> Um, so that made it, I think that made it easier to manage. Okay. But there are a lot of students in the program who are neuroclinical dual PhDs who are doing clinical work and and make it work.
0: Do you get a lot of or did you get a lot of say in where your placements were, or was it more kind of predefined?
1: Good question. So at the time there were few students in the program, and we had a lot of options for practicum okay. um, and so it was kind of like a ranking semi-matching system okay. where you would kind of rank your top three for the coming semester or the coming academic year and then our director of clinical training mm-hmm. would do fancy behind the scenes stuff and like figure <laughs> out who would get priority from which sites. Yeah, um, yeah, Often based on like your area of interest so I study psychotic disorders mm-hmm. and so We have had one option at the time for um, a psychotic disorders practicum. And so if you studied that and like really wanted to make that your training, Mm -hmm. you would probably get priority for that one. Or kind of as you were getting closer to finishing the program and going on internship, you would get priority just based on, you know, what you needed to still fit in in
0: terms of training. And your internship. So in speech language hearing here, we do some PhDs that are very clinically oriented where they get all of their coursework to be a speech therapist mm. and they do research to get a PhD and then after you have to do what's called a clinical fellowship which sounds similar to an internship yeah but ours typically like you can do the fellowship anytime after you finish the hours and the coursework even mm-hmm. before you graduate with your PhD yeah and you have to wait to graduate and then do your internship or was that like a choice good question
1: so um you have to complete the internship before you are granted oh, your PhD. Okay. If if that's the kind of sub path you're taking. Some people okay. never do internship um, because they are interested in clinical questions, but don't want to go on to, for example, getting licensed. I see. Okay. So patients. if you're
0: interested in getting a clinical license, mm-hmm. you have to do the internship, preferably yes. before you graduate. Yes. Got it. Okay. Um.
1: Nice. Yeah. And so... Some people, like for me, I finished, I did my dissertation defense before I went on internship. Okay. So I was done with all my classes and everything related to the like academics of the Mm -hmm, program. mm -hmm. And then I just went on internship and then I- That
0: probably felt nice.
1: It was very nice. Highly recommend. Yeah. Um, Because it's hard when you go on internship, you're 100% clinical. Yeah. And clinical work, you know, it's supposed to be a 40 hour- a week uh kind of situation but it always bleeds into other times and spaces especially with documentation and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people who don't defend their dissertation beforehand just feel like you never stop working because you're working all day and then you're working on your dissertation in the evenings and that like mental uh-huh. task switching is also really hard and
0: that sounds terrible yes <laughs> I'm sure people have rocked it but i I don't do well in the evenings, so mm-hmm. I would be comatose probably on a couch yeah. by the time I got home.
1: Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, so was glad to get that done. But
0: um, you were probably applying for jobs during your internship, right? So was that like also a little bit of a juggling thing?
1: Yeah, so a combination of applying for jobs and applying for postdocs and okay. seeing what landed, mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think... These days, it's much less common to get a job right out of internship in clinical science. Okay. Um, But, you know, I had some mentors who had been able to do that. And they were like, just give it a shot and see what happens. So I did. Yeah. Um, Ended up staying. So I did my internship at Vanderbilt Medical Center. Okay. ended up staying there for a postdoc. Um, it was just kind of the best fit in terms of all my options and the type of training I still wanted to get.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Then you were thinking, what next?
1: <laughs> what what next? Um, so it ended up kind of working pretty seamlessly. Actually, a- after postdoc, I didn't even apply for other mm-hmm. positions okay. formally. Um, I stayed at Vanderbilt and transitioned from a postdoc fellow to an assistant professor there. Tenure track. Um, not tenure track. Okay. Yes. Gotcha. So it was a um yeah, non tender track physician. Mm-hmm. Is that like and, a
0: research assistant professor? Is that sometimes what they're called?
1: Yeah, so- I know it's
0: different terminology we, depending on where you are, which is kind of confusing.
1: Yes, medical centers have a lot of different terminology. So yeah. there are different kind of, they call them tracks. Okay. Um. So there's like a clinician educator track. Okay. That's someone who might be primarily clinical work. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're doing some research. They're probably involved in training residents or fellows. Um medical residents or fellows, so usually psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. Um, or you might be like a clinician researcher track. Um, that's someone whose primary role is probably research and they're doing a little bit of clinical work that tends, at least where I was tends to be the tenure track kind of.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, yeah. So I was in the clinician educator track for that one year. Gotcha. Not tenure track yet, but with the hope to transition to that. Okay. Um, in a medical center a lot of your funding comes from what you can generate so it's either grants for the research part and then your clinical work yeah um and so it can be really hard to make that transition to yeah. being grant funded and that's kind of what would have pushed me over to the tenure track was being able to get one of those grants.
0: That's super stressful. Like sure I know is. in our field, we call it like soft money jobs, right? Where you're, yes. and that's often in clinical situations because your hard money is your clinical hours that you're willing to put in. Yeah. And your soft money is how much you can sell your research to people who want to fund it. But yes. it's a complete, I mean, you have to get started from scratch, right? You have to build that network. You mm-hmm. have to get one foot in the door.
1: Yeah. Ooh. And I I think maybe this is true for you all as well. You can get stuck in a place of I'm not getting my grants. And so I need to pick up more clinical work. And as you pick up more clinical effort, you just can't work on grants in the same way or work on research in the same way to get the grants going. And then I think that often ends people in a very large percentage clinical role when that's maybe not what they wanted to do to begin with. And it can get be hard to kind of dig yourself
0: out of that. That's a fairly common cycle I hear a lot with people who not just, I mean, psychiatry is obviously one that's common, but Mm -hmm. in my field of just stroke neurology too, Mm -hmm. that's very adjacent to what we do. It's like, Stroke neurologists can make a lot of money four days a week clinically, but then they have no time to okay. do any really cutting edge research or write grants. Mm-hmm. So unless you've got a mega lab with a bunch of people to help, yep. which I am assuming you probably didn't at that time, I didn't. No, <laughs> I wasn't old enough. <laughs> you're just first grown year. Up you're like, how do I
1: do this? <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we ever grown ups? It's a good question. Good question. Um, not the right what podcast not the right podcast, but anyway, so let's (laughs) land ourselves back. Yes. You, you came full circle. You're back here at IU.
1: I came back to IU. Yeah. Um, I, yes. So because of this really kind of challenging (laughs) strategy you need to have in a medical center, um, I felt that a lot of times I needed to be much more practical about what I wanted to research, what grants I wanted to put forth or how I was spending my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tend to not be so practical as a person. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 I am someone who is really curious, likes to, my favorite part of my job is being really creative okay. and like having unique, yep. different ideas. And so that just wasn't going to be sustainable in a medical yeah. setting where I had to make sure I got a grant. Um, Cause I think the grants I submit tend to be a little like more out there and a little more risky. And so it was feeling like I needed to kind of check out my other options. Um, and in particular options that were more in like an arts and sciences department. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of applying around and then this job ad for IU came out and I was like, Hmm. <laughs> I've been there before been there and I know I love the people I know right. I love the way that they think I think a lot of people in our department are very curious are very creative like I love to see the connections among mm-hmm, disciplines mm-hmm. and subfields and kind of think about how someone else's tools that we've never thought of in clinical science can be applied to our questions yep and so I was like oh I'm really missing that and I want to apply for this job in my mind, I was like, they're never going to even consider my application. Because it is like,
0: harder. They know you better, right? Yes. They almost ju- They can't judge you the same as other candidates because they're like, we've known Alex for a long time. Yeah. Like, it's not just the first time they've seen your CV or things like that. So right. it can be hard.
1: Yes. And another concern I had was, are they going to think I'm too similar to my advisor
0: ah, mm-hmm. who's
1: already... Or, you know, who's still in the department.
0: Um, Senior ranking, been yep. around for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. Um, but I got it. Clearly they didn't. <laughs> I
0: got
1: an interview. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the job talk went really well. Um, I think a big part of that was because I'm a product of the department. Like I, they've trained the way that I think and True. the way that I think resonates with a lot of people. Um, And I was feeling really good about that too. Like just every conversation I had, I felt like sometimes in a medical setting, I was constantly feeling the need to like justify or Hmm. explain why things were connected or why I was connecting things in the way that I was. And when I had my interviews and talks with faculty at IU, it just clicked for everyone. And everyone was kind of adding more elements and helping mm-hmm. kind of stretch the way I was thinking about things. And that to me felt really good and like something I was missing. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it was a pretty <laughs> easy decision
0: after that. That's awesome. And so, you've been here, is this your second year now? I'm
1: still in my first year, oh second my goodness. semester back. Yes.
0: Time is weird. It, yeah. I just. Cannot follow time, but tell us about, you know, what's your day-to-day now? What are you doing? So, you're tenure track. I am tenure track now. Okay. Woo-hoo. Great
1: um, success. <laughs> um, my day-to-day. So, since I'm still in early stages, a lot of the day-to-day has been kind of translating the projects I had started up at Vanderbilt okay. to the IU system. Um,
0: and that's getting... hard, right? Animal models, IRBs, whatever you want to bring over. What yeah, are you so,
1: thankfully... Maybe thankfully, not thankfully. I don't know. I'm not working with animals anymore. Okay. Um, so I'm primarily working with individuals who have a diagnosis of a psychotic disorder. Okay. Um, And working a lot with like different behavioral paradigms and neuroimaging. Okay. Gotcha. Um, But yes, so I had kind of an IRB that was already approved at Vanderbilt where we were starting to recruit some participants, but it was in a medical set- setting. Yeah. Um, and so- had just a lot of kind of different recruitment and retention procedures mm-hmm. than here where I'm primarily now recruiting from the community rather right. than the hospital I was working in. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of like translation of that IRB, getting feedback from just a new IRB that has different thoughts about procedures, <laughs> yeah. trying to integrate and update all of that, um, getting new equipment purchased oh. and up and running, um getting my tasks up and running, making sure they work the way that they did previously. So that's kind of one portion of my job is just like setup.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which is a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot to manage. I remember it well. Slash it doesn't end. So yeah. <laughs> just, just an FYI six six years in. Ooh. Nope. Equal amounts of setup, I feel like. Okay. But it looks different.
1: Yeah. if yeah. you have
0: more people to help. Yes. Someday.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm hopeful, especially on the IRB end, that it'll get better. Yes, it does. <laughs> <Yeah>. Can confirm. <laughs> um, and then another portion of my time is continuing. So I had a grant that I had applied for mm. at Vanderbilt, um, and I got feedback on that and wanted to resubmit. So translating that, doing a lot of writing related to grants and grant submissions, and also kind of finishing up projects I had at Vanderbilt. So sure. writing related to manuscripts. um. And then, yeah, right now we're in recruitment season, so it's real trying to recruit some cool students who want to think about interesting questions with me.
0: Very cool, PhD, Um, undergrad. Do do you do masters? Is there a master's option? We do not currently have a
1: master's option. Um, so recruiting PhD students. Okay. And then I feel like I've been fortunate enough that I'm teaching abnormal psychology and. There have been quite a few undergrads in that class that have been really excited about the psychotic disorders section of the class. And nice. then they're like, I wanna do research. And I'm like, perfect, I have the best lab for you.
0: That was totally me as an undergrad. Yes. Talk, took abnormal psych and called up the professor and I was like, let's, let's make this happen. Yes. And here we are.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I have <laughs> a, an undergrad that's working with me now who's been great. Um. Yeah. Those are, I would say are kind of the biggest portions of the
0: job. I really miss my clinical work. I was going to ask about that. Yeah. How you think you might integrate it perhaps in the future or.
1: Yeah. So the goal, maybe five or so years from now. Okay. Realistically, maybe 10 years. (laughs) Um, is to get a first episode or early psychosis program um up and running okay that is either kind of run through our department or we have a departmental clinic um that right. primarily treats anxiety um or depressive disorders. Um so maybe trying to get like another arm within that would be cool. Um or with this new hospital we've got in Bloomington, <laughs> um thinking about whether we could get a program running um here. And yeah. so I would love to get that up and running one for like my own ability to do clinical work and practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Two, I think it would be great for the grad students to have another practicum option that's local.
0: Um, Definitely.
1: Yes. Um, Three, I think just when I was an undergrad, there are some services here for individuals with psychosis, but it tends to be more chronic forms of the disorder. Mm, okay. Not a lot of early intervention, which is our new gold standard is to intervene in the first two years okay. of the onset of the first episode. Yeah. And so I would just love for that to be a resource for people here, especially with such a giant campus. Yes. College students are at that transitional age and we don't really know where they go if you know they have symptoms that then become untenable, as a student, right? Yeah. Those students might drop out. They might just kind of struggle for the rest of their schooling. And I think you've got good interventions now to help
0: with that. That's true. I mean, we have what, forty 000 to 50,000 students on this campus. Yep. It's, it's not a small number.
1: It is not a small number. And when you think about like prevalence of schizophrenia, for example, is about 1% of the population. If you think about psychotic disorders broadly, it's mm. about 3%. Oh, wow. So yeah, one to three in every hundred people you're interacting with mm-hmm, might mm-hmm. have or develop a psychotic disorder. That's um, right. So it becomes a big number when we're thinking about that many students at that critical age. Um, yeah, yeah. So I would, I would. That's the dream is to be able to have some sort of clinic like that. Um, some of my research is also moving more intervention based, and okay. so. I think it would just be a great space for like all the things to happen.
0: It sounds like a win, 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 win. Yes. So in the meantime, I know that this is the case with some clinical professions. Do you have to do something to like maintain your licensure? Like, is there a number of hours you have to do or like continuing ed? I know it's yeah. the terminology is different, but.
1: It's mostly continuing ed. So okay. that you don't have to have like practice hours to maintain your license. Um which is kind of interesting. It is interesting, right? That. But it's
0: similar in our adjacent fields. So yes. that's what I was wondering.
1: Yeah, so mostly continuing ed. And then there are other things that count for the CE credits, like okay. writing papers, um, yeah. attending conferences, speaking okay. at conferences. Um, yeah, there are a lot of supervising clinical training. Yes, um, that's so, how a lot
0: of our people keep their hours mm, up. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. So I will continue that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, having to do that for two states because I was licensed oh, in That's right. <laughs> and came and got licensed in Indiana, but
0: yeah, that just good at test taking. I'm sure at this point,
1: oh,
0: <laughs> or hopefully you're done actually. I hope now you I can just maintain things, oh, right?
1: hate tests. <laughs>
0: I hope I'm done with them. It's funny how many academics, me included, are like, oh, my God, I hate tests. And it's Mm -hmm. like, wow. Yeah. Well, you don't have to be a good test taker to end up here.
1: You don't. No. You just have to be a good enough test taker.
0: (laughs) The good enough standard is my favorite standard. (laughs) So every day, I mean, you're applying lots of skills you learned during your PhD, right? Like, What are some of your ones that you're like, wow, this was a really useful skill I learned and now I use it all the time?
1: Oh, okay. So <laughs> one of the biggest ones has been, um, it, I mean, it goes back to this like good enough kind of Mentality. Um, I think when I started grad school, I was someone who, if there was a deadline, like I got it done a month before.
0: Oh. And ambitious. I like it. Well, at the start of grad school.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but as you're in grad school, like you have all these other responsibilities that start to pile in and like some stuff just has to go a little bit. Um, I had a yeah. faculty member kind of describe to me, like, we're constantly juggling, and there are certain things we juggle that require us to put other things down and you have to be okay with putting some things down for a little bit and right. letting them kind of be on the sideline. So when you're working on a grant, that's a huge thing to manage and maybe writing papers has to be put to the side or yep, getting back to the committee you're on about something, you know, maybe I need two or three emails reminding me and that's okay. It doesn't yeah. mean I'm failing, that skill, I think, has been most valuable because as you become a faculty member, there are even more things you now have to juggle um, and other people juggling other things that you have
0: to juggle. That's right.
1: And so, yeah, just kind of learning what's good enough. This has also been really important when thinking about submitting papers. Um, So I think as a grad student, you like, it's your work, you know, you want to put your best foot forward. And I think I used to spend so much time trying to make it perfect, right? So yeah. it, got an acceptance immediately
0: which like' no, ever
1: happen <laughs> but no paper gets an acceptance immediately and so yeah. I think just like changing, once in a
0: lifetime maybe
1: yeah changing your expectations on that to say you know this paper isn't perfect but it's good enough to get sent out for review because
0: reviewers will always have exactly feedback um yeah. which is hopefully the beauty of peer review it doesn't always work out well but yeah. I mean you know one brain is improved by many brains. Mm-hmm typically. Yes. So like, even if you think it's perfect, there's, there's no chance someone else also thinks it's perfect, which is fine. You know, it's meant to be improved. Exactly. But it is hard to get over that hurdle. And I always talk to my students about just being 90% great with it. Are you 90% on board? Mm -hmm. Your writing is 90%. Everything's there at 90%. We got the wiggle room because we need it. Yes. People are going to give us feedback anyway. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think that's a perfect way to think about it, but that is definitely a skill I did not have coming into grad school that I think.
0: Yeah. Undergrads were taught to turn in your best product and there's no, typically. Yeah. No, no feedback. There's no chances yeah, to get good feedback and implement it. So I mean, we're kind of trained to think as perfectionists Mm -hmm. prior to PhD. Yes. Yeah. Makes a whole lot of sense.
1: Yeah. So that's been a big one. Yeah, it's taken a lot of learning. I'm still learning every day, practicing every day.
0: <laughs> I feel that. I feel like another one that's I commonly hear is just like scheduling and mm. being really comfortable with a crazy schedule that a yes. PhD makes you comfortable with because you have to do classes. Did you teach when you were a PhD student?
1: Yeah, I was a TA for one of my for yeah one year.
0: So it's a lot of juggling, yeah. it's a lot of like wearing different hats. And mm-hmm. then when you become a professor, it's just escalated.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. So you
0: get really good at juggling even more.
1: Yes, exactly. Um, Other, sorry. That's all right.
0: Other fun stuff.
1: Other fun stuff, like having to answer the phone when your mom calls.
0: Oh, we love, we love a good mom we phone call, though. We're not even going to cut it out. Hi, Alex's mom. No, we <laughs> love it. We love it. But what um, are some like new things that you've had to learn that maybe PhD student chip did not oh, man. make you ready for? The biggest one has been R. <laughs> The coding My, program are. The coding yes, program yes, are. Yes, yes,
1: um, I, I just kept putting it off in grad school because I, for a lot of the imaging process I was processing I was doing, I had to learn MATLAB. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm not here for another language, coding language. Yep. It's yep. too much. I'm going to keep pushing it off, keep pushing it off, even though I'm like seeing it rise. I know. And rise. Um. And it's open access, whatever, like, that's great. <laughs> and then I started working with um, this giant open access data set, the ABCD data Oh, sure, yeah. Adolescent Brain and Cognitive Development. Uh-huh. And it's so massive. It's so big. And it keeps um, growing.
0: They're still collecting data, right? It
1: keeps growing. So cool. We're at about halfway. And so, like, five time points. And they're following oh these kids for up to 10 years. Um... Yeah. So, and you know, it's like 11,800 youth that they're following. Oh my gosh. So all of this data, it's amazing. It's so much, but like even MATLAB runs slow with this data, but you plug it in R and it, you can go and go. So I finally committed to like, I need to learn R. I think, you know, in grad school, we had a statistics class where we used R. But none of the data sets we were working with or the questions we were trying to answer were things that were relevant to me. And it was hard for me in my mind to kind of translate how I could use some of this language with the data sets I need. Mm -hmm. So now that I'm kind of on my postdoc fellowship, that's when I like really committed to learning R. Um, It helped to kind of, I reached out to a bunch of people who had done kind of similar things with ABCD and they were willing to share their code. Oh, that's awesome. So being able to kind of pull the data set that in my mind makes sense and then to kind of run through people's code and see what the different lines yeah. of code are doing like what packages are they calling what how are pack- they setting things up yeah even something simple like how do i just get descriptive statistics right like it's a whole new link not wholly new but it's new and different from it's matlab Different for from matlab for sure so even just something as simple as that of like okay this is how they set up their line of code to get descriptive statistics and like i understand what this data set looks like and can kind of start to translate yeah. that has been very helpful and now i love r um Yeah. And it's so helpful for this data set. Um, And, you know, like it's become more popular. So there are grad students that are using R. Mm -hmm. And now when they need me to look at something or want to talk to me about something, I'm not like,
0: uh, help. Yes, (laughs) R was my pandemic child. Mm. I just got really mad at the old stat software that I was using. And I was working from home and it just was it was so slow. And I was like, we're done here. Yeah. And so we we set off on this journey of R in 2020. Thanks, pandemic. That's the one thing I'll thank you for. Um, and so here we are. Now I feel way better. But I'm yeah. I'm not someone who's going to ever develop like code packages. Like my level of coding yeah. and desire is not that. Right. So thank you to the people who do that for me. Yes. Um, but I so appreciate reading papers now and having people say, here's all of my data and my coding sheets yeah. freely available. And I'm like, this is amazing. Like this generation of papers Mm -hmm. makes it so much easier to do like replication, like new ideas.
1: Completely agree.
0: Oh, it's so nice. Yeah.
1: Even just differences, like having asked people for their code, Mm -hmm. seeing differences in how people are cleaning the data. Yeah, true. It's like, there are all these little decision points we have when we're doing research that we think don't affect the data, but
0: likely do affect the data. Especially neuroimaging. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. if you smooth a little bit more than someone else yes. does, if you denoise a little bit more than someone else does. Yeah. I don't do cerebellum, but I do cortex, but yeah. I know it's a similar problem. Similar. Um, yes. you get very different results. Yep. And it's yeah, it's it's important to have those things be open. That is yeah. for sure.
1: Yeah. Yes. yes. I think another thing I like I'm constantly telling students, this goes back to. Um, the like good enough Mm -hmm. is that with a lot of I mean if you're in a PhD program if you're trying to get a PhD you are at the cutting edge of science right you're asking new questions that people haven't thought about you're using new methods that some are established but like they're not perfect and so being able to be informed about what you're doing and to make an informed decision that you can back up but also not feel like there's a right answer. I feel like this comes up with imaging all the time. Like what smoothing kernel do I use? Some people for the cerebellum say four, some people say six. There's no right answer, but you need to kind of know what that means. What does smoothing mean? What does that size mean? Mm -hmm. Or kind of the region you're thinking about and be able to make an informed decision. But I think sometimes students get really hung up in like, I need to know the specific right Mm -hmm. answer for this parameter. Yeah.
0: Black or white. Yeah.
1: Very black or white. Um, and I think that's true kind of across the board, like there often is no right answer and there might be 20 different people who have 20 different approaches and reasons that are all reasonable for their approach, but you have to be able to kind of just select one and move on,
0: (laughs) (laughs) which is so hard sometimes in practice. I think that's something that mentoring wise and i want to talk to you about mentoring but mentoring wise it it seems logical to me that we make these 20 choices Mm -hmm. and you just have to write them down remember what you chose and why yeah but when you're teaching someone else to do it for the first time it is the most overwhelming thing like i remember the first ever phd student i worked with we were just going through a really basic for us a really basic stat model like an ANOVA or something like that. And it was still like seven decision points of yep. do we get rid of these outliers? Like, should we do a parametric statistic versus a non-parametric? But it's just mm-hmm. stuff that's logical to me now. Yes. That took days of just sitting down and like, yeah, here's our choice. Here's the rationale, just so she would remember it. Yep. Um, and yeah, it's it's interesting because I feel like science is very put forth, especially neuroscience is like a black or white thing, and yes. it is under no circumstance. ever nope (laughs) nope yeah even in cellular neuroscience I know we're talking about like imaging but yeah even in cellular neuroscience you've chosen a certain cell you've chosen like a certain animal model perhaps you've chosen Mm -hmm. a certain like way of measuring it yeah very very different yeah many choices
1: absolutely and that's why I think it's also good to be really specific about your findings um like, it always just will kind of bother me when people have paper titles that are really broad. They're, like, catchy and it makes you want to read them. The but cerebellum
0: is responsible for.
1: Yes, because you've used a very specific set of methods, a very specific population, a very specific set of stats, yeah. and so there are limits to what you can say.
0: Yeah, you didn't just solve cerebellar neuroscience in one paper. I mean, that'd be cool, but yeah. Probably not, I would think. Well, then it would probably not be in the journal I'm submitting. (laughs) (laughs) That's like, yeah, that's the next best thing. Yes. But even some of those big (laughs) journals that love those flashy things, you still really need to read very closely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, I wanted to talk about like mentoring. Yeah. Is that something you got to do during a PhD? And is that something now that you still really actively like have Mm -hmm. to learn?
1: Yeah. So... When I was in my PhD program, um, we did a lot of the mentor. So my advisor was the chair of the department, and so had a lot of responsibilities. Couldn't be in the weeds in the lab with us for every little thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of had a structure where we got mentorship from the PI, but then we were really as grad students in charge of mentoring like any of the undergraduates in the lab. Cool, and they were kind of working with us on certain projects. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I got a lot of undergrad
0: level mentoring. And you had a pretty big lab too.
1: We had a pretty big lab. Yeah. yeah. So I was mentoring like three to four undergrads at a time. Oh, like, a lot for PhD students. Yes. And we we tend to like kind of we have a kind of step up model where they, you know, come in, they help with like data cleaning or something. Mm-hmm. As we see that they're proficient in that, then we kind of step up to like joining study visits and then running study visits and then kind of developing, hopefully their own project Mm -hmm, that they can work mm -hmm. on. Um, So I feel like it was interesting to kind of get that whole progression because I feel like that's also a little bit of how I approach grad student mentorship. Obviously not, they're coming and doing data cleaning, but they might come in and their first year project might be something with existing data in the lab. And we can kind of yep. get a sense of where like the stat skills are, the ability to kind of think about the questions they're interested in. And then we work up to, you know, eventually the dissertation project, which should be kind of fully their brainchild. <laughs> mm. um, uh, so and, you know, they might be managing a lot more of the running participants, data collection, True. data cleaning, like that kind of stuff. So... Yeah, I feel like it helped, but it's very different mentoring undergrads than it is mentoring grad students um, who, in many cases in our field, are coming in having done work in different labs. And so there might be some good habits or not so helpful habits. Different habits. Yeah, that's right. We need to kind of work through. Mm -hmm. um, It's also an interesting time of balancing, like, I'm still your mentor, like, I still have knowledge that is helpful to you, and I want you to be independent, and, like, figure out, start to kind of grow that independence, and figure out who you are as a scientist, like, what you're wanting to do when you graduate, and kind of move towards your next stages, and I think that balance can be tricky, whereas (laughs) with an undergraduate, that level of independence remains kind of contained. Yeah. It's like levels within a
0: sub-level. Yeah. No, it makes it makes perfect sense. And it's it's tough with grad students too. And and being also younger women in science, I feel like is a different, also a different game. We won't talk about that here. But um (laughs) I think that yeah yeah, next podcast. I think the team aspect is really important Mm -hmm. of having other people that you're able to say, hey, I don't actually know that much about this method. Yeah. But my colleague over here does. Absolutely. Meet with them, come back to me, let's have a brainstorm. Yeah. That's something I became a lot more confident in Mm -hmm. like several years down the line. Yeah. I think in the beginning I was like, I need to be good at all of the things Mm -hmm. that my grad student needs me to be good at. Yeah. And six years later, I'm like, nope, I'm just, that's just not my thing that I'm going to be good at, but I do know who is.
1: Absolutely. (laughs) And I think that's so important for team science. Like I, I, Guess I started talking with you about how I love kind of thinking interdisciplinarily. True. And like imaging is a perfect example. If I had to put myself in a box, it would not be that I'm a neuroimager. Mm-hmm. I use neuroimaging tools but and the exact same. I am not a neuroimager. And so when it comes to thinking about all these parameters, I am thinking about them in the same way that my grad student is, where I'm trying to read lots of papers and take in some information. Decision, but if you want someone who can really deeply think about that, I'm going to send you to one of the faculty that is a neuroimager that yes. is curious about imaging right. as a method, or is the MR physicist that's right. who just kind of knows it in and out. And I hope that's something my students also take away is that like you don't have to know everything, and science is I think best when it's team science. Um. I've personally been trying to learn computational modeling um, because I think it is really valuable for some of the tasks that I'm using. And yeah, I'm like, I'm not an expert in that. And so I even still have to go to my cognitive science faculty who just, that's their bread and butter. Like they know this in and out and they know, I I am at a point where I don't even know what things I don't know. And I can recognize that and go ask my colleagues so they can tell me the other things that I should be considering. That's right,
0: that's right. I'm on like a first name basis with most of the staff at the IU Statistical Consulting Center at this point. Love that. Yeah, I'm a I'm a good statistician, but it's one of those things where you say, can I do this better? Yeah. <laughs> like, how can I do this in the best way possible? Yeah. And it's really nice to have those resources, mm-hmm. I feel like. Yes, but anyway, I won't keep you here all day. So you told me in five, 10 years, you want to start a clinic, which would be yeah. awesome. Yeah. What other goals do you have in that timeframe?
1: Um, so yeah, good question. I. So in, in the context of starting the clinic, shifting the lab more towards some more intervention-based work. So I just, having worked in the clinic for so long, it's just so valuable to be able to see That work that I'm doing on the more basic end be applied to treatment and like see it help people in the moment. I think sometimes clinical students, when you're in grad school, you get into this oh, but when I'm in the clinic, I'm only helping one person. Mm -hmm. But if I, you know, make an important discovery, I could help lots of people. And I think you always oscillate between that argument and then now I'm in a period of. Yeah, I'm doing these things but like it's going to take years and years and years for them to get to people. But when I'm in the clinic, I can impact some person's day yeah. or life kind of right then and there. And so it's always a balance and I want to have the balance and so having an arm of my lab that is more intervention focused, thinking about that kind of individual while still maintaining the more basic like Absolutely. we want to try to push things forward more broadly is a goal of mine. Um I also often entertain the idea of having like a higher administrative role in our program. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. So, director of clinical training is one that maybe okay. seems attainable, maybe in ten or so years. And at some point, I do think it would be cool to be chair of a department. I'm um, gonna like
0: record that sound bite and play it back to you when that time comes. Don't like, play it for our chair. How do you chair. feel? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um. Yeah. I. I don't know. I just like. Having been in grad school with my PI being the chair,
0: right? There's right.
1: so much, so much to manage, and a lot of things that can be frustrating and difficult. But I think there, I also saw a lot of good that mm. he was able to do, um, and ways that he was able to kind of inform and like push forward the program yeah. that I think would be cool to be a part of, um, at some point and. I don't know, for some strange reason I love kind of administrative stuff and <laughs> personal We stuff. need
0: you never leave. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> no, I'm I'm with you. I, I find it really interesting to work amongst and with people. Mm-hmm. And it's its own to me, it's like its own little um research game of yes. like, how do I work best with this person? Or like, how do I work best with these people? Ignore Slack, y'all. We all have Slack open. It's a bad idea. <laughs> um, you know, how do I work best with these people? And I feel like in an administrative, you just ask yourself that all the time. It's like this yeah. really glorified project manager role. But yeah. I don't know, I love people. So and it I lets can see you it.
1: think really high level of like where is our like where's our clinical area going where's yep. our graduate training program going yep like how how does that also then fit in the world of like other training programs through their graduate programs and the field of like our field so broadly and i think that's an interesting kind of yep. perspective to yep. then hold also later in your career when you stop doing those administrative roles and you need to think about like where is the field going like what grant do i need to submit
0: it's a different perspective entirely. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. I might find it fascinating for a few years and I'll be like, we're done here. Yeah, good table break. Yeah, totally all right. fair. Totally all right. fair. So we'll we'll end as I usually do, and I yeah. I know you were like, oh no, I'm not gonna have a tip, but I bet you totally do. Um, with some yes. top tips of let's pretend, you know, some PhD students are listening to this oh, thinking yes. what in the world, mm-hmm. you know, what, what can guide me in this, uh, gr- I like to call it a gray juncture where it's like very unclear what the next step is. Yeah. Uh, what, what you got? Okay.
1: <laughs> well, I think this one has already been mentioned, but I am going to mention it again because I tell everyone this, but networking.
0: Yes. Yes. And
1: not just networking, within your area but i think networking really broadly like there if there is someone whose research interests you even if it's not what your group does or what you think you're gonna do connect with and talk to that person like if there is someone so some of the conferences i go to now have separate panels for Mm -hmm. like editorial boards oh cool and that's always something i've been kind of interested in is Mm -hmm being an editor for a journal, because I love writing and science writing. And again, it's this kind of like shaping Mm -hmm. the narrative of Mm -hmm. our field. Um, Talk to those people. Like I have at times talked to people at NIH about being like a program officer. Mm -hmm. I think it's 100% okay to explore different types of careers within science and to just start to connect with and Develop relationships with those people, even if you end up being like, that's not really for me, and you never want to do it. Those people also have their own connections. And I think when I was in a a phase of kind of transitioning or figuring out, do I want to stay in a medical center or do I not? Yeah. I reached out to all of those people because at some point or another, they made the choice that they didn't want to stay in kind of an arts and sciences or research setting, they wanted to go to editing. Gotcha. but they started as grad students phd's right or you know i don't want to run my own lab i want to work at nih right like they all had these decision points and i think to our point about asking other experts you don't know what you don't know it was so valuable to talk to people because i at different points have been ready to like totally jump ship mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think when I talk to people and learn more about what those other careers mean, what their day to day looks like.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and their advice for like, you should kind of stick it out and see how it goes before you jump ship. um, That kind of advice is really valuable mm-hmm. and something that I think people who have always stayed in academia, like I can't provide that advice to someone. I don't know. I'm with you. Um. So yeah, networking in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also opens opportunities for you. Like someone now knows you and kind of knows the way you think or knows you know, how much of a fit you might be for that type of career. And yeah. people are often willing to give opportunities or help you kind of navigate and figure out where the opportunities are for things like that.
0: 100%. The snowballing effect is huge. Mm-hmm. I notice that more and more as yeah. people have started to, gain knowledge about like what I do, who I am, I just get a ton more requests to do really interesting stuff Yeah, because I've talked to, you know, a critical mass of people at this point and they're like, oh, Brie would be good at Mm -hmm. this thing, send her it this way, which I never would have thought to ask for. So it's, it's kind of fun to see now, you know, five, six years in, I get a lot more cool things that I have to decide on many of which I don't have time to do, but would love to do.
1: Would love to do. (laughs) Yes. I feel that. But at least you know that's cool. where the opportunity is if you ever find space <laughs> or <over> time.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Yes.
1: Um, so I think that's my that's my really big one. And like not to be afraid to explore. I think some programs can be a little demeaning towards other career trajectories sure. or a PhD. Um, like, very
0: sp- like you go into academia or nothing or even... Yeah. Some or, are just all industry, right? Yeah, no you academia. Go into industry
1: and that's what it is, but I think if and if that's what you want to do, great. But I think it's always great to have more information. Um I always got the advice from my advisor to keep as many doors open as possible all the time. And so if you do have to close a door, it's okay, but
0: close try it gently.
1: To, close it gently <laughs> and see if a couple others can kind of open and I think networking in this yeah. way, allows you to keep doors open. um, And they're doors that, like, don't need to be tended to constantly to stay open. Very true. Yeah.
0: Very true. <laughs> That's a good ending. Keep the doors open. Yes. Well, thanks for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. Maybe we can have you
0: back in, like, six years and do a little check-in. Oh,
1: my gosh. Where is she now?
0: <laughs> I feel like that would be awesome. That would be fun. All right. Put me on the books. All right. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks, Alex. And, <laughs> Thank uh, you. We'll chat sometime soon. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you next time.